Went back to my law school days. Uh, I had a buddy who was a top graduate, and he got all the interviews we didn't get. And he was always comparing offers, and he came back one time from a small firm in some place like Kansas City. He said, you know, that was a weird firm. I got the impression that once you join the firm, you never leave. Welcome to Just the Right Book. I'm Roxanne Cody. I recently had the pleasure of interviewing John Grisham when he appeared uh, for an author event at R.J. Joya's in Madison, Connecticut. He was there for his new book, Camino Island. It was his first tour in 25 years, and I was just delighted uh, that I was going to have the opportunity to interview him. You probably know this, but just to make sure you do, John Grisham has over 300 million books in print. They have been translated into 40 languages. Nine of his novels have been turned into films, and he writes one of these books every year. So for a guy who probably uh, could easily retire. He nonetheless is energized. I loved the opportunity to hear what recharges him at this point, all the different jobs that he's had. So I am delighted uh, that you'll get to hear the conversation I had with John Grisham. And after my interview with John, stay tuned to hear from the students at Yale about what's on their summer reading list. But first, my interview with John. We are joined today on Just the Right Book podcast by one of the best-selling authors in history. His latest book, Camino Island, is yet another example of his brilliant and riveting capacity to keep us enthralled with his storytelling. His new book is set on a beach town in Florida, involves the heist of F. Scott Fitzgerald's five original manuscripts from Princeton's Firestone Library, a charming but crooked bookseller, a debt-ridden, writers-blocked young author, assorted villains, and no lawyers. So let me start with the obvious question. As I welcome John Grisham to Just the Right Books podcast, why no lawyers? Well, I get tired of them occasionally. <laughs> I was determined to write a book with no lawyers in it, and I almost made it. I got down to the very, At last, the end. The very last chapter. I wrote myself into a corner, as we say. I boxed myself in, and I had to have a lawyer or two to finish the story. Yeah. But they're minor characters. It was, uh, it was not about lawyers. It was not about uh, uh, cases, trials, law firms, courts, appeals, none of that stuff that I love to write about. Uh, it was uh, an effort to write a mystery. Mm. Sort of a mystery, uh, hybrid mystery, suspense, uh, dealing with books, uh, rare books, bookstores, and booksellers. And um, I love old books, and I collect a lot of old books. And you so, do yeah, collect them. Yeah. So do you wish you had kept the 1,500 copies of Time to Kill that would be worth over mm. almost $8 million? They're worth $4,000 <laughs> a piece, yeah. <laughs> sure, I wish I had ever won them. <laughs> They printed 5,000 hardback copies. It was 1989, and I bought 1,000. I was going to sell, you know, I don't, know what I, th- I don't know what I was doing. And they actually shipped me 1,500, and it made me mad because I, ha- I had an invoice coming yeah. to pay for them. So I couldn't wait to ship 500 back and keep my 1,000, which I eventually sold to libraries and such. Uh, but at one point in my little small office in a small town in Mississippi, I had 1,500. They were boxed up. We couldn't walk for all the books. It was, it was pristine copies, first editions of A Time to Kill. So yeah, at four thousand bucks a pop times fifteen hundred, the math is pretty easy. Yeah, <laughs> well, I kept know, I kept a few. Well, you know, one of the things that I thought about as I was preparing to interview 
you. I opened the bookstore in 1990. And so I thought the world of bookselling was going to be just like the firm when we got it in 1991, because I thought, this is going to be a cakewalk. You know, this is the way it's going. I got this book. We're selling thousands of copies. Good to go. But the world's changed. It started changing about that time, uh, the early 1990s, when uh, Barnes & Noble began expanding and Borders. And the big war back then was between independent booksellers, bookstores, and the big chains. Yeah. And it was a war. My timing was good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then suddenly, you know, so many independents uh, were casualties of that war. Yeah. And and the big guys got bigger and bigger and expanded more. And then in 1996, we had the Internet and Amazon. And suddenly... There was another enemy out there that was far more uh, menacing and threatening to, to bookstores. Look, we can say evil. I oh, can say evil. You can say evil. I can't say evil. You can't say it. I can't say evil. But we had no idea what was coming. And, and, and you look at what's happened now. There's so few independents left. Uh, we've lost several thousand bookstores in the past 15 years. We lost 700 stores one day when borders closed. Right. When one, one bankruptcy wiped God. out. When the firm was published, we used to have the old uh, Walden books and B. Dalton bookstores yeah. in every mall. And so when I published a novel, the firm Pelican Brief Client, those books in the early 1990s, there would be a huge display in the front door. You couldn't walk oh, in. I remember. You couldn't walk yeah. in the Walden books for all of the copies of me, Stephen King, Michael Crichton, all the guys, the big guys who were selling every year. Those are points of uh, retail. And, and so we sold a lot more books back then. Yeah. That's all gone. But you know, the other part of it is, and I think. Richard Howarth, who I know is a friend of yours at Square Books down in Oxford, and R.J. Julia is here in Connecticut, we're having some of our best years ever. Now, how long will that last? Is this the calm before the storm? We don't know, but we, I think there is a, a vestige of support that continues, and we continue to sell hundreds of copies of your book in a store like R.J. Julia's. Oxford probably sells thousands. Yeah. Um, but let me ask a different question. You've had a career that included working in a nursery, <laughs> being on a fence crew, a highway os- asphalt, asphalt crew. crew. You sold underwear, underwear in a, a department in a store. store. Men's, you men's, a, men's underwear. You have a BS in accounting. Mm-hmm. You have a law degree. What is it in your upbringing that drove these kind of varied interests and ambition. But your parents were not educated. You grew right. born in Arkansas, grew up in Mississippi. What do you think drove that, John? Well, my parents were uh, determined for us to have a better life. And mm. so they were always pushing. There were five of you, right? Yeah. And they were always pushing us to go to college, and we all did. And so we were very lucky to have parents who were uh, very close together, close-knit family with a lot of support to get to college. We, we, all, we all had that. And then once I got to college, uh, I wasn't thinking about writing. Uh, I, this was not a childhood dream. I didn't study writing in college. Uh, I was going to go to law school. Uh, once I got to college, I said, I'm going to become a lawyer. My family was very proud of that, and my parents were very proud of it. And, and I was a lawyer for 10 years and uh, in the same town where I grew up. My parents lived around the corner. Um, the writing came later in life. I'd never written anything until uh, I was 30 years old, and... I was inspired by a something I saw in a courtroom to create this story played out through the eyes of a young attorney like myself who wanted the big trial, wanted the big case, the attention, the verdict, that kind of stuff. And I became obsessed with this courtroom drama 
that rattled around for months and months and months. And finally I said, okay, see if you can write it. Mm. And so I started writing. And it was just because, so, so it's interesting because when I think of your books, they are incredibly plot driven mm -hmm. where you just, you, you just got to keep turning the page. You got to give up on sleeping, working or anything to read them. So it's interesting to hear you say it was the plots that drove you to get it written down. Still the plot. Still the plot. I never get away from the plot. Uh, when I start writing a book now, when I, when I had the idea for a plot, whatever the inspiration was, and most of the ideas come from newspapers, stories, magazines, you know, current events, current issues. Once I have the plot uh, mentally where I can see the beginning and, and an end and whatever, I'll start making notes and working on an outline. Uh, when you write suspense, thrillers, mystery you better know where you're going the whole time because you, you, it's easy to get lost. Yeah. And you may have to drop off clues along the way. You've got to, you've got to build this thing, and it's all about plotting and planning and outlining. Most writers don't want to outline. Uh, I outline extensively. You do. Uh, it's the accountant in you, John. Well, I, I think that helps, yeah. I think it's also a very simple writing style. It's, 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 scene A goes to scene B, D, all the way, and when you get to Z, the story's over. And that's one reason that they... Uh, used to be favored by Hollywood. Uh, no longer. We can't make movies anymore for a bunch of reasons, but, um, no, you know. It'll come back. We had great success. We had great You've success. You've done nine movies, right? Nine movies, yeah. One was one was a Hallmark Hall of Fame classic, A, a Painted House. The rest of them were studio movies. Uh, maybe it'll come back. Right now, everybody's flocking to television. Hollywood has a, a herd mentality. You know, whatever's hot today, they run over there, and it's just, we see it going. Do you think about doing a series since those are hot now with We're all the streaming? We're working on a couple. Yeah, We're working on a couple series. You want to share anything well, with us, Rogue, John? Rogue Lawyer is uh, has gotten a lot of attention because it could be a real long, uh, ongoing series for a long time. Mm. And I love the character. He could sustain a, a series. Right. Uh, we we have some pretty good talks right now with people to do that. Uh, there's, there's a company that wants to take the movie of The Rainmaker and bring it back as a Ooh, TV, a TV series. And they're pretty serious. So, so we're having serious conversations. I have contracts signed for probably three or four movies, and nobody's going to start filming this year or yeah. next year or next year. It's just, they're just dead in production. In production means they're dead. So. Yeah. So, John, one of the things that occurs to me as I listen to you and I think about, so this is your... 30th novel, your 36th book, you've done nine movies, you've got a YA series. I'm sure you've made some dough, 300 million books somewhere turns into money. What recharges you at this point? What keeps you excited about what you're doing? What part of the process of writing? Is it coming up with the plot? Is it finishing it? Is it getting it read? What, which part of this brings you the pleasure and the energy to keep doing it? All of that. Yeah. It's still That's fun cool. to write. That's cool. This, this, I, I, I have not had this much fun writing a book, Camino Island, since I wrote a baseball book called Calico Joe. Mm. I love writing the, the because And you're reason. a baseball guy. Love baseball. Yeah. So the baseball You were going to be a pro baseball player. Well, when I was 10 years old. I'd never well, I didn't get close. Yeah. I, I, okay. Don't, don't worry. I saw a curveball when I was about 15. I said, oh, okay, no. I can't get that. No, I don't, don't want to <laughs> see that again. Uh, so, no, I was an early casualty in, in that uh, quest to, to make the major leagues. I, I, I really enjoy uh, putting the stories together, writing the books, getting the books finished, and then publishing a book and sitting here with people like you in Madison, Connecticut. I've never been here before to have to, to, to meet 200 fans and sign books. I mean, who would, who would cool. enjoy that? Who would That's enjoy? great. And what else am I going to do? I tell people I go to my office each morning from like 7 to 11 to write. It's a long day, darling. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot of writing. 
Okay. Because if you write for three or four hours in a row, your brain's pretty well mush. But but my office is a separate building. There are no phones, fax, internet, nothing like mm. that. It's quiet, dark, same spot every day. You write longhand or no, write a, a, a computer? A big computer screen. And and I sit there in a total silence with a strong cup of coffee at 7 o'clock, and it's just magic. It's still magic to create a story that's going to be read by, by a lot of people who are going to be entertained. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I mean, and, I, I, and I still enjoy that. That's so much fun. So speaking of Camino Island, so the the plot, as we talked about, you've got the main character is a young woman, piles of student debt, which we'll come back to because I think it's part of your next book, uh, writer's block. She had a collection of short stories. She, she had like a fleeting fame and then packed it in. Or she's trying, she Sorry. uses that structure to now infiltrate the the uh, world of stolen manuscripts, which we'll get back to. Right. But it made me wonder, do you get a gazillion letters and questions from writers just like her looking for, like, magic pills or tidbits on how to become John Grisham? Not really looking for advice. They, they, they just they, want you to... Well, they, they have an idea that they think is, uh, you know, irresistible. Or occasionally they'll ask for a word of advice. That's that's pretty rare. Um, really? Yeah. Most most of them want to know um, if if I'll help them write a book and split the money or something like you know some weird deal like that. They really ask that? Oh yeah, yeah. I get a lot of mail from lawyers in prison, and if a lawyer who's in prison has got a story to tell, mm. and I and I really I have to I have to make myself. Uh, not be seduced. Don't open the letter. Yeah. Don't open the letter. Yeah. yeah. We have a rule. That I have a, a, a secretary who helps me do the mail, and I say if, if it's from a law, if it's from prison, don't answer it, because it's usually a pretty compelling story, especially yeah. if it's a lawyer. I've actually gone to prison before to uh, research a book. I've gone to a bunch of prisons. And I've been to death row in, in several states just doing book research. But I, I went to a prison one time uh, in, in route before I went. I wanted to see if they, if they had any judges there in prison. And the, and the warden said on the phone, he said, uh, no, we don't have any judges right now. I said, do you have any lawyers? He said, oh, yeah, we've always got some lawyers. <laughs> so I went to the prison and interviewed uh, three lawyers. And it was fascinating. They have fantastic stories to tell. Mm. Uh, but that, that's kind of how I do my research. So that brings up a couple of different topics, John. So speaking of death row, you grew up in favor of the death penalty. Mm. Tell us about the incident that happened that made you rethink the appropriateness of the death penalty. I was researching, I was on death row in Mississippi, uh, which is a, a very, very dark, depressing place. And it was late one night, and I was in the, what they call a holding room, which the holding room is next to the, back then they used the, um, the gas chamber before lethal injection. This is, uh, this is uh, early 1990s. And uh, I'm in the holding room where the, the inmate sits with his, his last meeting with his lawyer and his minister, whoever's with him, it's either lawyer or minister or both, nobody else. He's got about an hour. Each state has different little rituals that fascinate me and how to get ready to kill people. And so once that hour's up, he, he walks through a door, and there's the gas chamber. Uh, they strap him in and shut the door, and then they pull the curtains so the witnesses can see it all. And so I'm walking through this final, you know, like I'm about to be executed, and I, and I have the chaplain with me, and it's, it's a very moving moment. Yeah, I can it's, imagine. It's very, because a lot of men have, you know, that was their last uh, moment of freedom and uh, or uh, life, I guess. And um, 
had the conversation go. He, he said, he said, Mr. Griffin, you, you're, you're a Christian, aren't you? He, he was a retired Baptist preacher who was a, the, the parchment chaplain. I said, yes, I am. He said, do you think um, Jesus would condone what we do here? Mm-hmm. And I said, I said, no. Yeah. Because I couldn't say yes. Right. And he said, I don't think he would condone it either. Yeah. This is not what he taught. At that moment, I realized that it's wrong, just yeah. like that. And it was, uh, it was pretty profound because my entire, I'd never stopped to think about the death penalty like most people. Growing up in a Southern Baptist area like that, it was, you know. It's just the way, it's just the you, way. Thought it, it. you thought about it. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you know, you got to get revenge. And, and so that changed me. And you're now active with the Innocence Project that we've done some work with as well. So what may, so the Innocence Project, for people who might not be familiar, is a program that works to get um, prisoners exonerated right. where they've been falsely... Um, Wrong, wrongfully convicted and sent away. Uh, we have 2.3 million people in prison in this country, which is the highest incarceration rate in the civilized world. Nobody else even comes close because we have so many laws designed to put people away. We don't know how many of them are innocent, but there are a lot of them. Mm. And once you, once you realize there are tens of thousands of innocent people in prison, uh, it kind of changes the way you think about the whole system. And I joined the Innocence Project board 11 years ago when I wrote a book about a guy who came within five days of being executed in Oklahoma, and he was completely innocent. And the, the Innocence Project in New York, there, there are about 50 Innocence Projects all over the country right. as, a ne- as a network. Do you work with Barry Sheck? To all yeah. He's, he's our founder. Uh, but we, we just had our 350th uh, DNA exoneration, mm. a guy who served about 30 years in prison for a rape he didn't do. And that's what we do. We, we get thousands of letters uh, from, from prisoners, and we have a way of going through those in New York with staff. They, they select the cases that we pursue. We have the money to go in, hire lawyers, get DNA testing, and pursue a case to uh, actually innocent, to finding innocence. That's what we do. And uh, it's 25 years old now. We have 350 uh, exonerees, uh, about 40 of whom were sent to death row. Yeah. Uh, and it's, we're doing God's work, okay? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very, very difficult. It's, 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 the work is very difficult because... And laborious. Oh, you have to... Yo, yeah, it's, it's painstaking. Uh, fighting, these, fighting the state in court for, for years is, is, is very difficult. Does it make you want to go back to being a lawyer? Because a lot of these were like crummy defense lawyers. Almost all... Uh, were crummy defense lawyers at some level. There's a combination of things that come together to, to get somebody wrongfully convicted. There, there are eight factors that, that, that come together in, in every case. Uh, um, it's fairly easy to send an innocent man to prison. If the prosecutor wants to build a case against you, he can use uh, informants that are lying, yeah. informants that are paid. He can, he can, have, he can claim you, you confessed in jail. You, you can put together a case, and that's what happens when there's no physical proof. And and that's and that DNA is also helping police departments today to exclude people or and include right at people. the outset. Yeah, so it's being used properly. Um, but there are a lot of innocent people in prison, and you know we're trying to get them out. So, John, one of the things that I, I was struck by looking at the you know you were in the House uh, of Representatives representing Mississippi for almost ten years. Mm-hmm. You've done a lot of advocacy work. You're also an artist. Do you ever struggle with how much advocacy to put into your books? Do you ever worry about, you know, are you tempted to want to do more advocacy through your 
art or yes. do you pay attention to it? It's a balancing act. Yeah. Because you can't you can't preach too much in popular fiction or popular music or whatever because you can't assume your audience shares your politics. Yeah. And you don't want... I, I get, you don't want to lose that audience. Well, I, I get irritated when I, when I read a book and the, I don't like the guy's politics and it keeps coming up. You yeah. It's like, what the hell? What the hell? Yeah. Uh, so, but now, I, normally, I normally pick issues where it's pretty clear which side of the street I'm on. Exactly. And when you're writing about death penalty and wrongful convictions, you know, there's not... There's not I'm, I'm over here. It's not, not very gray. It's not very gray. Uh, but yeah, I struggle with it all the time. How much? Uh, how much? How political do I want to get? And uh, my wife is a very good uh, uh, gatekeeper. There, she tells me all the time, "Stop preaching and uh, go write something fun. <laughs> go write." After two or three heavy books, she'll say, "Get off your soapbox and give us a thriller." So, speaking of your wife, Renee, after you published your first book, "Time to Kill," which was not a big hit, the flop at the yeah, total flop, total flop. Um, what role did Renee play in you not thinking, you know what, John, maybe you ought to just stick to the law? Well, here's what happened. She encouraged me to finish A Time to Kill because she loved the story. Mm. Uh, once I got it finished and I, I couldn't get it published at first, I, I, st- I went from one book to the next. I had the idea for The Firm, and The Firm was just a, a mundane working title that I couldn't until I thought of something better. I never thought it would stick. Renee loved the story of The Firm. Mm. because it, it went A pretty back, great story. Went back to my law school days. Uh, I had a buddy who was a top graduate, and he got all the interviews we didn't get. And he was always comparing offers, and he came back one time from a small firm in some place like Kansas City. He said, you know, that was a weird firm. I got the impression that once you join the firm, you never leave. And I, that stuck with me, and I, I, t- I talked about it over the years and talked about it to Renee. So Renee believed in The Firm. She always thought The Firm was going to be a big book. And she said, let's get that one written. So it took two years to write The Firm, and by, by the time I came out with The Time to Kill, in, in uh, the summer of 89, I was almost finished with The Firm. Mm. Now, and I told her, we, we had these conversations, uh, you know, like, like couples do. I said, if this book doesn't work, The Firm, I'm quitting this. Okay, I've, I've spent five years writing two books back to back. If it flops too, I'm tired of this hobby. I'm going to go be a lawyer full time. I was a lawyer full time anyway, but I, you know, I was I was not going to stick around. And the firm, you know, changed everything overnight. And John, it's one of your pieces of advice that you're pretty consistent about to writers that they have some advocate there, whether it's their girlfriend or their brother or their wife or their mother, teacher, to be their teacher, reader, sibling, friend, somebody who loves you, somebody who loves you. And, and I'll tell you the truth. Tell you, and they want you to succeed and will tell you the truth. Right. Some, and somebody you, you, you value. Yeah, they, you, you need someone like that in life, to, I guess, for everything. But certainly to, to, to read your, whatever you're writing and just be honest about it. So this is the first time in 25 years uh, that you're doing a bookstore tour. Mm-hmm. We at RJ Joyas are, we feel like we hit the jackpot um, getting to have you here. What prompted you to get back on the road? Got bored. <laughs> you know, I've been in the kitchen for 27 years. Yeah. Uh, harassing my wife. I'll go work for a while and come back to the Did kitchen. Did she encourage you to get it? You better believe yeah. it. <laughs> uh, Stephen King toured last year. He went to 12 yeah. cities. Stephen and I are big buddies. He went to 12 cities, and he, he, he didn't sign much. I think he, he did appearances. That's right. And, and big crowds, and he had a ball. Okay? Yeah. And he was telling us about it, and Renee said, 
why don't you tour? Bingo. Yeah, bingo. Get out of the house for a month. So I'm, I'm taking the whole month of June and going to 13 stores. Well, we're thrilled. So we're your second bookstore, right? Started. I was in New York uh, kicking off uh, the book yesterday with publicity. Went to Drove to Paramus yesterday afternoon, the world's largest Barnes & Noble. Had a good time there. And then, not uh, as good a time as you're going to have here. Of course not. And, uh, <laughs> and some of the stores I picked, some of the stores over the years, oh, this is another reason I'm doing this, over the years, um, I would see a story about a bookstore. And I saw one about R.J. Julius, you know, some mm. time back. And I always have this thought, I should go there. Mm. Your best-selling authors should tour and go to bookstores and say thanks and, and meet some of the readers, sign some books, Hang out, do interviews, do things like this. That's what we should do. Yeah. Uh, but I got, well, so, we're I got so lazy over the years, I, I stopped doing it, okay? <laughs> and so here I am. As long as you keep writing those here books, don't, John. Don't worry. I'm, I'm, I'm never going to stop. So my last two questions are, what's the book that changed your life? The Firm. Yeah. Uh, the Firm changed, well, around our house, we refer to, fir- to time as BF and AF, before the Firm <laughs> and after the Firm, because there's a very a big, big difference. It's like a 180 change, right? Overnight. And then tell, tell us about your next book. The next book is a legal thriller that's going to come out on October the 24th. Like every year? Yeah. Uh, I usually I start every year on January the 1st. I start a legal thriller with the goal of finishing. Like really you're that disciplined? Yes, ma'am. Mm. And finish it by July, by July the 1st. And I'm always on time or within a few days. The last two books have been early. Um, mm. I knew I was going to spend June... Doing this. Uh, touring, so I, I hustled up back in the wintertime, and I got the book finished uh, last week uh, before June 1. So the book is uh, with my agent now who's reading it, and uh, I won't see it again for a couple of weeks. Then I'll start doing the edits and turn it in around July the 4th. That's, that's kind of our routine. Wow. But it's, it's done. I mean, I, I worked real hard in uh, January, February, March, well, April and May. I, I really, uh, April was a great month. We stayed at home, and I got a lot of work done because I knew I had to finish by June the 1st. So you feel tidy about being out on the road? Not going to worry about it. Excellent. I don't worry about much anyway. You don't. (laughs) You know, I listened to a lot of interviews with you, and I thought, you know, you've earned this, but it's pretty cool. You don't get many people who get to a place where they really kind of give up on the worrying. Yeah. That's a pretty nice spot to be in, John. Hey, you know, we wake up every day and we're healthy. The kids are healthy. Yeah. The new grandson is healthy. Oh, you got a grandkid. Everybody's healthy. Now I'm jealous. (laughs) Everybody's working and healthy and happy. And that's a lot to be thankful for. Yeah, that's right. We're very fortunate people. Well, so speaking of fortunate, uh, I want to thank you for any number of things. Uh, For underpinning the cash flow of R.J. Joyous for (laughs) 27 years. Uh, I'm grateful for that. I love putting your books in people's hands, particularly your YA series, mm-hmm. and get people excited about the kind of riveting book that they can sit down and understand again what reading can do if they've taken a break from it. And I really want to thank you for joining us on Just the Right Book podcast. And I really want to thank you for coming to R.J. Joyous here in Madison, Connecticut. So many thanks. I'm delighted to be here. Looking forward to a fun afternoon. Great. Thanks again to John Grisham. Now it's time to add to your summer reading list. We hit the Yale campus to ask the students what books they're looking forward to reading this summer. 
Um, so I made a point this summer that I was only going to read things that bring me joy because I, I graduated from law school a little while ago. I decided that I was just going to read, uh, YA novels and beach reads all summer. <laughs> um, and I, that's, and that's what I've been reading. Um, I pick up a book that's YA. It's called Grace and the Fever. Um, I listened to a couple of book-based podcasts as well. So they, they, uh, recommended that to me. So I'll read that. Um, and I'm also really looking forward to reading Startup, a novel. It's basically based on this woman going back into the workforce after she has kids, working for like one of those Silicon Valley tech bro-y startups, and how that fits into her life. So what's your first name, and where are you from? Tatiana, and I'm from East Haven. So what is on your summer reading list, or what are you looking forward to reading? Everything, everything. Have you seen the movie yet? Yes, I have. I always feel the book is better than the movie, so I wanted to watch the movie first and then read the book. What's your first name and where are you from? Me, Tran, and I live in Fairfield. And what's currently on your nightstand? Uh, currently, since I am a mother of two very active toddlers, I am listening to a book on tape or Audible, and it's called Heat and Light by Jennifer Hay. I went to a reading of hers in West Hartford, actually. Now that it's finally summertime, a lot of people make summer reading lists. Is there anything that you're looking forward to reading this summer? Um, the newest David Sedaris book, I have it um, actually on CD. I got that for a present recently. So I have those books. And there's another New Yorker book about the Osage murders that I was really interested in reading. So not super, so a balance between light and a little heavy but true crime-ish, so that's entertaining. I'm, uh, my first name is Anna, and I'm originally from New Jersey. So Anna, what is on your summer reading list? I, on my reading list is uh, The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, um, and they uh, recently made a Hulu series about the book. Uh, it's like a dystopian future, and so I want to read the book first before I start the series. What types of books do you typically read? Well, I'm in school now, so typically it's architecture-related books, but for fun I usually like to read fiction, um, usually like either sci-fi, fantasy, or sort of dystopian. Are there any other books this summer that you're looking forward to reading? So far, that's the only one on my list. I'm, I think the next one will be an architecture book, and I'll go back and forth. So you read the book, and then you'll watch the uh, Hulu series? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I think it should be good. I'm Catherine from Hartford. So what is on your summer reading list currently, or what are you looking forward to reading this summer? I'm looking forward to reading The Social Profit Handbook by David Grant. It's a book about uh, organizations and individuals who are invested in um, social the social profit of their communities, like uh, helping people or um, educating their communities um, and helping them set goals and reach their outcomes. For a complete list of all the books we've talked about today, including John Grisham's Camino Island and the books that the students at Yale are reading or plan on reading, just go to bookpodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Just the Right Book Podcast on iTunes and rate and review us. We're trying to get a better demographic handle on the people like yourself who listen to Just the Right Book Podcast. So I'd love to ask you to go to our website, bookpodcast.com, click on the listener survey, and it should take you about 30 seconds, and it would be really helpful to us. So thank you in advance for taking the time to do this. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, a division of CRN International. Original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres, and our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all very much for listening.